I, you know, I was kind of a part of the Dave Ramsey approach early on. And they just like, you know, invest in growth stock mutual funds. And I'm looking around, I'm like, there's 10,000 mutual funds in America. (laughs) I'm like, how the heck am I supposed to pick one? You know, don't buy more house than you can afford, which is what I did in the beginning. And then it was, you know, the market collapse and all that. I mean, if, if possible, if you can handle it, I would recommend anybody to house hack a multi-unit and don't buy an expensive car. You're listening to the Millionaire's Unveiled podcast, where you'll hear the stories and interviews of everyday millionaires. We'll unveil their decisions, their strategies, and their current portfolio allocation. Now to your hosts, Clark Sheffield and Jace Mattinson. Welcome back to another episode of the Millionaire's Unveiled Podcast. This is episode number 147. Clark, how's it going? What's going on in your world? Good. Doing pretty well. Doing pretty well. We just I looked through this list of millionaires we have upcoming. We have about 20 interviews in the pipeline here. Yeah. Yeah, it's so pretty a remarkable. Lot of, a lot of fun interviews coming up. Yeah, we've got a, quite a few who start to reach out and tell us their stories. And, you know, we had a, a really interesting letter this week, very touching letter written to us by a listener about disability insurance and the, the need for it. And I think, you know, in a future episode, we'll, we'll address that a little bit more, but definitely getting some cool emails from you listeners and, and, uh, definitely getting some more millionaires who are, who are writing in wanting to share their story and, I think just in general, be willing to, to help the greater, you know, good. I mean, there's a lot of great stories out there and a lot of people that have unique uh, strategies that we can all learn from. And it's just remarkable, I think, for us to, to be able to facilitate sharing that and, and be involved. Yeah, totally. So, so thanks for listening. Just want to read one quick iTunes review. It says, this is a great podcast if you are interested in personal finance. I really appreciate the variety of backgrounds and methods to create and maintain wealth that one can learn through the stories of the interviewees. Kudos to the hosts for putting together this show. I found it a bit, a bit less than a year ago and have been listening to every single episode since the beginning. So that's from Lay Human Eye on iTunes. So so thanks for sharing. Um, if you enjoy the show, we appreciate the reviews. Helps us helps us keep this thing going. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you for those who have. Yeah, you know, Clark, you and I were talking, you know, the last couple weeks here and, and we came across this article that in the Wall Street Journal that the states now are taking aim at people with no retirement plan and passing legislation to, to help people save for retirement. And, you know, as we continue to uh, roll up the national debt and all these other things, uh, you know, I think, and just in general, I mean, life gets more expensive. We're probably going to get into some, you know, extreme inflation over the next little bit. It's become harder and harder for people, I think, to want to save for retirement. There's kind of that live now versus save later mentality amongst a lot of millennials. And Colorado, just what, two, three months ago, became the the latest state to to create kind of a, a plan called the Colorado Retirement Plan, basically, for the state. And, they're, you know, they're basically, they got a few different types of plans, auto IRA, a marketplace, and a multi-employer. And Colorado is going to offer the auto IRA uh, plan. So definitely something to keep an eye out. It's interesting. You know, the federal government's done a lot of things, you know, just in the last, what, probably 20, 30 years, introducing different options, you know, for people. I think it's starting to become a realization for a lot of them that Social Security is probably not going to be around for this generation. Uh, and if it is, it's going to be on a very limited basis. So people really got to take that 
into consideration and, 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 you know, start saving for their own. Yeah, it's interesting. I think the states are just starting to say, look, if, if we don't do this, if we don't force people in a sense, I mean, every employee can back out, but if we don't force people, then they're not going to have retirement and we're going to be left cutting the bills and cutting the checks for them. And so private and private, I guess, if you work for the state, private companies, public companies, some of these states are mandating that companies have some sort of retirement option and, and are auto-enrolled. Right. So just a a piece from this interview, it says employers must offer a plan, either a state administered IRA or something else they set up on their own. Employees can opt out of the plan, but they have to explicitly make that choice. The data shows that most employees don't opt out. So I think that's, you know, that's what they're trying to do. Put you in and and the people that aren't as proactive. And probably if you're listening to this show, you're a little bit more proactive, right? Yeah, totally. Totally. But for those that aren't, it's just interesting that they're being auto-enrolled. You, you want, it makes me wonder how many people out there at some point are going to have a decent chunk of retirement savings and not even realize that they have it. Yeah, no, I think there's, it's definitely going to happen. We've got some of those in my own company, right? That, that auto-enrollment feature works and people never regret putting away, but it's just when you're signing up for payroll or whatever, it's a lot harder to, to opt in versus opt out. People that, that are auto-enrolled, you know, they don't even realize. And then they end up with a chunk of money at the end of their their working life or whatever. You know, and a lot of people don't – well, I shouldn't say a lot. I mean, there are a fair few Marymount people that do tap that early or, or maybe need it for certain expenses. But for the for the most part, most people don't. They let us sit and ride for, for as long as they need. So, right. last week we had Philip. He's an Air Force pilot. He's been in the Air Force for 16 years. He has four children, a current net worth of $2.4 million. He has several rental properties and talks about, among other things, feeling a responsibility to spend his money wisely. On today's show, we've got another great episode with Doug. Doug has a net worth of about $1 million. He's an engineer and is invested primarily in real estate, but also has a very unique piece of his portfolio as part of an employee stock option plan. He's part of an ESOP. So we get into the details with him about that and his real estate and his not so much later start in, in things, but definitely a, a more calculated uh risk that he took to to do certain things and kind of start to spiral and grow his net worth. If you're interested in sponsoring the show, send us an email. We're opening up a, a few sponsorship slots uh, in the near future here. Also, we've got several multifamily opportunities in the pipeline. If you're interested, send us an email at millionairesunveiled at gmail.com. Without any further delay, let's get into today's episode with Doug. Doug, do you want to just give us a little about your background and kind of what you're up to now? Hey, yeah. Name's Doug. I am an engineer by trade, and um, now I have an engineering business. You know, started off working for the government right out of school in about 07. Um, then slowly I've worked my way into uh, becoming more and more of an expert in the field and built up some career capital and was able to start my own business within our, within our own company, a brand new division, which has kind of catapulted me into my, uh, my income and net worth goals in these last couple of years. Awesome. And what is your net worth today? Today, without looking at the market again, it's about uh, 900K, give or take. But but you were a millionaire a week ago before, I guess we're recording this on, on March 10th, but before the market took a, a big correction, you were a millionaire, correct? <laughs> right. I'm plus or minus around there. So, so, I mean, so you've been a millionaire offset. probably like five times over by now, right? Right. Yeah. A lot of people I'm sure have, and a lot of people <laughs> have lost a lot more. But yeah, it's been a rough rough couple of weeks for the market here and it's uh, good for it's you good though time. man because you can you can keep celebrating that milestone yeah exactly yeah right yeah 
Exactly. Popping the uh, seltzer. Totally. And and that does not include value of your business, correct? No. And actually, it's not technically my business. I am still a W-2 employee. However, I, I receive the profits and distribute them to our to the employees on my team. Okay, cool. So how is, well, I guess, what's the makeup of, of the 900 or the million bucks? What, how do you kind of have that divided up in your buckets? Uh, yeah, so over the last couple of years, it's really moved a lot into to rental property. It was more heavily in, into stocks. Um, so, so far right now, as of now, about 350K in rental property equity, and then 401K and thrift saving plans, which is just your government retirement that I had for a couple of years as like the 401K for them. That's about 245, 250K. And uh, then my present company, I do have stock ownership in it, which is, it's still considered like a retirement fund. It's a, it's a pre-tax amount. And right now, without this year's evaluation, that's about 130K. Is that kind of like deferred comp almost? Um, it's an ESOP. I don't know oh, if okay. It, yeah, yeah. So it's a, the company I work for is 100% ESOP. Oh, that's uh, awesome. No, it's it's, it's if you're going to work somewhere, I, this was the last place that I could probably work a W two job. You know, I really, <laughs> I, I, no, I really was going to start my own business, but you know, with the talk later about being newly divorced and trying to figure everything out, um, I was like, I really want to give these guys a try, and they they really they came through and. I've learned it's uh, it's a lot easier to swim the English Channel when you got the Queen Mary uh, sitting right beside you. So then um, the primary home, I, whether or not I include that right now, it's about 100 k And then recently I started maxing out my HSAs, so that's up to about 25 k after a couple of years. And I keep about typically 50 to 75 k in cash just available. And then I recently invested in a 506C fund as uh with about 50k as i this year was like the first time i became an accredited investor as well so so that's kind of the breakup yeah Most, that's awesome. uh, yeah it's kind of spread out a lot more than i actually thought it was before i did this yeah totally i think sometimes that starts to happen right you start to cal- allocate funds and, and grow your portfolio of assets and all of a sudden you wake up like you are you're a millionaire and you got you got money in all sorts of buckets so yeah it's pretty neat for for the money that you've got in real estate, is that single family? Is that multifamily? I know you mentioned the one syndicated investment deal you did, but the rest of it, where is that kind of broken up into? As of right now, it's uh, three multifamilies. So it's, um, uh, let's see, I have two four units and one three unit. And, um, you know, those, I started off by, you know, buying the four unit as a house hack. So that kind of catapulted my savings, investing, and myself into the real estate. And and then the money that you've got invested in the market, where is that kind of divided? Is it bonds, stocks? It's a hundred percent stocks, index funds. It's either you know V stacks or VTSAX or the VFIAX, depending on which fund that I'm allowed to invest in on which account or 401k plan I was in or HSA. So it's straight across the board: equities and index funds. Interesting. And has it always kind of been like that? Uh, yeah, since I would say the last three or four years before that, I didn't really have as much to, uh, invest and I just kind of picked stocks, I guess, or mutual funds. I, you know, I was kind of a part of the Dave Ramsey approach early on and they just like, you know, invest in growth stock mutual funds. And I'm looking around, I'm like, there's 10,000 mutual funds in America. <laughs> I'm like, how the heck am I supposed to pick one? Yeah. So I kind of, you know, paralysis analysis there and kind of kept a lot of stuff in like savings accounts because I was just afraid of picking the wrong fund. And then once I, you know, kind of grew out of that and heard about index funds, then I just dumped everything into into those uh, index funds, mainly the Fidelity. I mean, uh, Vanguard. 
Yeah. Let's go back a little bit. In in those early years when you were looking at the 10,000 funds, did you move money a lot from fund to fund or did you kind of just pick one and sit it there for a year or two or what was kind of your strategy? Um, yeah, it was I'd pick one and then I'd be like, oh, that one's moving up faster. So then I'd jump onto that one and then I'd realize it was like almost in traffic, you know, when you pick a lane and then you see the other one going. So I, then I'd jump over to that one that looked like it was doing good. And of course, I'd already lost the ride. And then I'd see, oh, the one I was on is doing better now. And I'd kind of jump around. It wasn't too, uh, it wasn't too productive at that time. And I was, who knows what I was even paying in, you know, fees at that time because I wasn't extremely aware of that. Yeah. So, so big picture here, everyone, we're recording this beginning of March. So right in the middle of this coronavirus stuff in, in the last 30 days, the last month or so, the S&P is down, I believe, 18, 19%. I guess it rebounded three or 4%. So either way, it's around down 15, 16%. Does that affect you at all? I mean, obviously it affects your portfolio, but are you making decisions because of this dip in the market of 15%-ish? Are you buying more? Are you pulling out? Are you reacting to this at all? Me personally, I'm not reacting at all to the market okay. part of it. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I'm maybe I'm looking to buy more rental property. Interest rates are so low, you know, that means I can afford to get more uh, rentals. So totally. Um, and yeah. then I just keep the same allocation getting pulled out every month for, you know, out of my paycheck and everything going into to 401k, HSA, just maxing yeah, out, maxing keep out going all in. Yeah. Yep. And within the HSA, you, you in index funds as well? Yeah, so that's all invested except for I think you have to have a two thousand dollar minimum that mm-hmm. has to stay in cash, but everything else has been invested, and I just save the receipts and you know throw them under Dropbox. Yeah, and so, do you do that through your employer? Yep. So they they offered that, and then this year we also were offered after all this the ability to put in a post tax into our four hundred one k on top of the four hundred one k, the match, and all that's in the ESOP. They allowed us to. Uh, also invest through their 401k as an after tax. Oh, so you got a Roth 401k option. Yep, as well. So oh, nice. That's great. Yeah. So I need to start filling the Roth bucket, we'll say. And what you just mentioned, saving your receipts in a Dropbox for the HSA, you're referring to just taking a lump sum payout for all those expenses, right? In, yeah. Ex- sometime in the future, once your ex- expenses build up. Exactly. That's like the triple tax savings, right, of the HSA. Totally. So yeah, yeah, just maxing that out as much as I can and then just save those receipts for, you know, when I need it. Yeah, really interesting strategy for somebody that's that's maybe not familiar with it. So backing up here, Doug, just for a minute, right, there's kind of two groups of people that listen to the podcast. One are the people that are super interested in hearing about one's allocation and exactly how they're invested, right? Maybe they're curious into how they want to invest themselves or what bucket they should go in or what mutual or index fund they should buy. And then there's kind of another group that's more interested in in hearing people's stories. So just backing up to your upbringing, as much as you're comfortable sharing, what was maybe your upbringing and how did you get involved in all this stuff? You kind of said you you came into contact or heard about Dave Ramsey. How did all this start? Because now you've obviously been financially successful. You're a millionaire. How did it all come to be? I mean, I started working as young as I can remember, you know, doing paper routes and all that stuff, but I won't go through all that. But, you know, I just came kind of fascinated with it. And, you know, I remember saving receipts at seven, eight, nine years old of things that I'd bought with my own money. Like I bought my first pair of Nikes, you know, things like that. And then upon graduating college, I actually had a, a newborn within two months of graduating college. And all of a sudden I looked at doing a budget and it became completely overwhelming. Like I realized I had no credit. I had no credit score. I had no money. I did have, you know, my engineering career, which I thought would be, oh, now I'm going to, all my life is I've been working 
to you know graduate college and I my first job offer was basically what I was making delivering pizzas so I was kind of oh man I don't really know what I'm doing here so my stepmother actually gave me the Dave Ramsey CD set and from that point I became like a finance kind of junkie and back then we had CD players in our cars and uh, so I would put those CDs in on my way to work and on my way home from work. And I basically listen to those every day, kind of how I do podcasts now. Um, so I started with all those baby steps. I cut up every credit card. You know, I used the envelope system for years, actually. Um, and I still have looking through budgets from 2007 that I kept up to date daily. I was pretty obsessive with it when when you have no money and, you know, all of a sudden now you have to provide for a child and like the fear of everything kind of came in. Um, and I had no idea how I was going to make ends meet. So I became obsessed with trying to pay off all my debt. And, you know, even if it was like a low interest rate, which is something I don't do now, you know, and then went through all the, tried to get through much of the baby steps as I could. I sold a bunch of cars. I sold everything on Craigslist. I tried to get out of debt as quickly as possible. Um, it still was taking quite a time because we just, at the end of the day, there wasn't that much money to to spend around at the end. You know, and then I'd start preaching to people about how they needed to do their finances. And I tell older guys at work, you know, hey, you, you, know, you don't you you shouldn't be using credit cards. This is, you know, you don't know what you're doing, you know, and they're looking at me like, geez, who the heck is this kid? Uh -huh. But, you know, I had to tell everybody what I knew. So, you know, basically that was 2007. I, you know, got into the bought our first house because I couldn't afford it. So they gave me a house. And uh, at that time, it's just what they did. And, you know went into negative equity and, and the downstream of that. And then eventually, you know, I had another child and I would say, you know, 2014, 15 ended up separating from, from that relationship and then kind of went back to living paycheck to paycheck again. Now that, you know, I had to kind of support two houses and, um, I went down that path for a little while, not really sure what I was doing. I was going to try to start this business. So then 2016 come, I was able to actually start this business within our company. Um, it was a brand new division. I had autonomy to hire, uh, bring in new employees. And I, my first couple of employees like introduced me to a new genre in my, you know, my world of personal finance. It was like, they were like, you have to read the simple path to wealth. And then it was just every day. It was like F you money, F you money. Everybody in the office would just keep saying. So, you know, then I was like, oh, this is the answer. This is the answer. Now I started listening to every single fire podcast and everything about uh, V stacks or VTSAX and the 4% rule and just listening to a ton of content and books. So now I just kept trying to figure out how I could put money, as much money as possible into um, into these index funds. But at the same time, I was still making the same salary as I was at that time. I hadn't gotten into receiving any profits from from the business. So, you know, my net worth kind of it didn't really grow as much. But the one thing I did do at that time is I started to try to max out all my retirements and HSAs and then somehow just make it work from there and then still tried to invest off off to the side in the V stacks. And then one of my employees then introduced me to bigger pockets. And then all of a sudden, I became obsessed with the real estate. You know, I listened to every podcast. I bought every book. I'm in the car all the time traveling for work. So I can't really read a lot. So, but I listen to, you know, your podcast all the time. I'm a stat junkie. And then I listened to, you know, real estate podcast. And within two months of that, I was like, all right, I figured it out. And I bought a four unit. And then from there, it was like all of a sudden, I now had all this money to invest. 
because I went from renting, paying $1,300 a month in rent after taxes, which still wasn't that bad for the area we were in, you know, plus all of the expenses that came with the rental. It was a house, so I had to pay for everything. You know, so you're looking at $1,800 to $2,000 a month of after-tax money that's going, you know, into my housing. Now, when I bought this house hack, I was able to live there and actually cash flow. So that right there completely changed my entire mindset on, oh, I can, I can make this work. You know, I can, I can now have disposable income to invest. Right. So I was able to two to three thousand dollars start investing a month after that from the savings that I was having from not, uh, not renting anymore. Wow. Um, yeah. So that, that, that was kind of a, like a wake up moment. And then the way I funded the, the down payment, it was an FHA loan. So I only needed three and a half percent. I took a 401k loan as my down payment. I didn't even have to put any money into the deal to actually go from, you know, if I would have needed to rent something, I would have had to come up with first months, last months and all that. But since, you know, I had saved up some money in the 401k, I was able to actually use that and parlay that into, you know, a cash flowing asset. So um, you li- you lived in this first quadplex. That's how you got the FHA? Exactly. Yep. So it was a little difficult to, you know, be a single father and then uh, kind of swallow the pride and then move into, you know, a four unit without a driveway with basically on a postage stamp where I had, you know, a seven acre, you know, house in the kind of the country. And this was in town. It was, again, it was a bit of a swallowing of the pride and, you know, convincing the kids that, you know, this is just going to be different. And, and, you know, they're kids and they loved it. And, you know, they still, we still go over there and fix up things and, and work on things together over there. Or, um, and I actually bought the place next door this past year. So we were over there quite a bit, but it, it had quite an influence on them too now. So they've already said their first house is going to be a four unit and you know all that stuff. And except they're going to live on the top floor so they don't have to hear all the neighbors. But, but <laughs> yeah, but, but so <laughs> they had some college, we had some college girls living in the, the floor above us. So you got some good experience from it. Huh? <laughs> right. Yeah. A lot of wrestling. So, um, explaining things, uh, Yep, yep, they're just wrestling, bud. <laughs> yeah, so it was a, you know, it was a, it was a great experience though. For and then they saw the power of that, you know, and they saw that, hey, you know, you can, uh, you can make a little sacrifice once in a while, and you know, swallow your pride and and do something else to make a difference. And like I said, that just catapulted my ability to to save, invest, and then buy, you know, some more properties. Yeah. And that's what I've been able to do from there. Wow. Thanks for sharing that. So many different directions we can go here. But yeah, thank you for opening up about it, sharing it. You know, I think it'll connect with somebody. Um, I want I want to talk about this first quadplex. But first, you mentioned an email to us before the show that in January of 2017, your net worth was at about 100,000, right? Yep, that was, yep. That's so it's about, gone up about, I mean, whatever it is, 800, 900,000 in the last three years and change here. So pretty amazing. Yeah, I ran some numbers just investing in the market. And that's what I, I predicted in 2017, once I heard the simple path to wealth. And I figured based on 10% returns over the next few years, at this point, I would be at about 465000 So with real estate and, you know, increasing the profitability of that business unit that I have, we've been able to basically double what I was projecting to be at at this time, you know, three years ago. Yeah, yeah. So talk about this 401k loan. That's a a topic that hasn't come up much on our show. For for somebody that's not familiar with it, tell us about that and and how you did it and if you were nervous, right, pulling money out of your 401k. 
Um, I wasn't really nervous. I guess I would consider myself sort of a risk taker in things. Since a 401k loan, you can actually take the loan out to yourself and then you just pay yourself back the interest. So since this was a three and a half percent down, it was a four unit, it was like 350,000 or so. So I basically only needed $14,000. So at that time, I'd begun maxing out. My, my retirement was around 140. So for me, it didn't seem like that big of a deal. And I got to pay myself back. So your company allows you to do that. And for my company, it was in seven days. I had the money. It was easy. I'm just like, all right, I just signed a piece of paper saying I want this. I agree to pay it back. And I think it's 60 months. And then they just do an automatic withdrawal from your paycheck. So that's that's how that worked out. And basically the cash flow, I ended up paying that off early with the cash flow from the property. So within six to 10 months, I paid that loan back in full and then went and brought another bought another rental four unit rental property with another 401k loan. And then some of the money that I've been able to save because I was no longer I was, you know, saving so much money from living in a four unit. Yeah. So that this first deal, let's talk about it a little bit. How did you find it? Obviously, you said it was a quadplex. And so how'd you find it and how much did it cash flow monthly? Obviously, you lived in one of the four units. Right. So when I, I found it, it was just on the MLS, um, I was actually looking at two units. And then, you know, this four unit popped up and the realtor I was with was like, let's just go look at it. So I went and looked at it. And the market we live in is extremely competitive. So I knew, I think it only is listed for like 339 or 340. We went in there and there was like, you know, 10 people in there and they'd already received three or four offers before I even got there. And it was like in you know, 10 minutes after they opened it for the open house. Wow. Uh, yeah. So it was pretty competitive. So I just went in high. I, I ran my numbers and I knew it would cash flow really well at over 400,000. So it was before this market actually really knew what uh, they were just comparing them to single family homes more. So I offered like 350 or something like that, you know, 10 or 15 above asking and was able to knock it down right away. And uh, so when I moved in, I took the largest unit. I was able to get, I think, about 31 or 3200 in rent from the other three units. And my mortgage with taxes and insurance was about 2300 a month. So, you know, I'm cash flow positive at $800 a month. And I had been paying 17 to 1800 in, you know, rent and oil, gas, all that stuff. So now I'm talking 2600 cash flow positive after tax money. Do add the taxes in there. That's like a forty, fifty thousand dollar raise almost. So I rent about a thousand dollars a unit ish. Yeah. Yeah. Typically right now it's renting for, yeah, it's almost, you know, 4,700 a month in rents. Wow. And at three and a half percent down, you only put in what, what 15,000 after closing costs or 18,000 yeah, or something? Yeah, 15, 15 total. Wow. And, and it was cash was that much. Yeah. Yeah. And it was no cash of mine. I, I say no cash because it wasn't, it was new cash. Right. Exactly. It was something that I couldn't touch till I was 59 and a half. So Mm-hmm. I, I, I viewed it as not cash out of pocket. but So w- when you say, I'm just curious about this. I mean, I know what it means for like for Jason and I and other real estate investors, but maybe somebody <laughs> who's looking at real estate. When you say that I ran the numbers, right? I knew it would cash flow. I knew what, what price it would be good at. Is this a model that you found online? Is it <clears> one that you created? Is it one that you found and then kind of mixed up? Or how do you kind of do that initial screening on a new property? Um, for me, I, I created a spreadsheet. I've also used like the bigger pockets calculators and stuff, but for, I have my, you know, I'm an engineer. I like my own spreadsheets. Um, so, and I can, I can enter fixed values and I 
I put in the purchase price and what I plan to finance, closing costs, all that stuff in there. And then I account for vacancy. I account for property management, even though I still self-manage. And then I account for, you know, CapEx, maintenance, utilities, all that in one sheet. And then it breaks down and actually gives me a cash on cash return with, and I usually run low to mid rent numbers. So that way I know really what it, what it would cash flow if, you know, I wasn't able to get the highest in town. And my first rule of thumb, which, you know, all markets don't work this way is if it's a multifamily in my area, I look to make sure it's at least minimum is the 1% rule. You know, I mean, where the monthly rents are. 1% 1% of the total purchase price. So if it's $3,000 a month in rent, the highest I'm going to pay for that three or $3,000 $3, a month in rent, the highest I would pay is 300,000 for that, for that property. So like this first one I bought for 350, the rents are 4,500. So, you know, it was like a 1.27 for the quote unquote 1%. Rent. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I'm, I'm constantly, I just go on like Craigslist or, or those and I just type in two bedroom in the town I'm looking in, you know, I do that every week or two and just or three bedroom and and see what people are asking for rents and see if they're still on there from the last time I looked. And if I know they're not on there, then I'm pretty good idea that those rents are, are good rents to go by. And have those rent, have your rents increased since you purchased it? Uh, yep, they have. So yeah, I think the one was getting 1200, another one was getting eight. And the one I was in was only getting 1200. Now, the two three bedrooms are fifteen hundred each. Um, I have a one bedroom opening up, and I think that is going to go for nine fifty next month. And then I have another one bedroom that I was that's been able to go up to about nine hundred a month. Um, mm-hmm. That was at eight hundred, so it's it's gone up probably four hundred a month at least four to five hundred since I since I uh, bought it. Yeah. So big picture here at four unit. I know you have eleven units rental units total. What are just, you know, real quick, what are the other seven units? So 11 units total and how much do you get from, how much cash flow do you, do you make monthly? Um, on each of them or combined? Yeah, just total. Um, total, it's anywhere from, you know, 3,300 to 4,000 a month in cash flow after everything. Wow, that's great. So $50,000 a year-ish. Right. With, you know, very little, minimal, I would say little, <laughs> minimal money compared to, you know, say if I was just investing in the index funds. Mm-hmm. And then how levered are you? Uh, quite. <laughs> no, I, um, I'm about 70% leveraged on two of them. And that first one I bought, I think I'm at 80% now with the way uh, appreciation has gone. So between, you know, so probably 75 total as far as leverage goes. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So going forward here, where do you go? Are you looking for more units? Is it a bigger multifamily properties? Is it, are, are these all is this all real estate that you own in your area? Do you invest outside? Do you self-manage? Uh, yep. So as of right now, I am self-managing, and these are all within two miles of my office. So it makes it pretty easy. And actually, some of my employees actually live as tenants per their choice. They're like, can we just live in your place? I'm sure. Right ahead. <laughs> That's um, kind of funny. And then, yeah. And then they're you, you pay them friends, and then they pay you back, right? Um Right. I just told him, I said, you know, you, you got a good raise this year. Uh, rent's going to go up. <laughs> I, actually, I, I actually haven't raised their rent. They have a really good deal. They take and it's it's nice because they take care of it. You know, they're there and they'll they'll uh, take care of uh, snow removal, mow the lawns, things like that. And if somebody locks themselves out, I can trust them to go over and, and take care of it. And then, you know, they've been then brought on friends of theirs and 
we have a local college in town and medical school and, and they, uh, they stay in a few of the units and, you know, it's been, been kind of blessed with some really good tenants in that sense. But so as far as future, I, I really want to increase the number of units that I have this year. I think I kind of just joined a mastermind and got, you know, triggered to somehow do like 10 deals this, this year, which, you know, since I've been doing one and a half a year, that's, that's kind of a big deal, which would force me to no longer self-manage, which I think would be a good thing. And I'm also looking outside of my local market. I found a couple markets still within, you know, an hour and a half of us, but I'm seeing, you know, a 2% deal versus 1.1, you know what I mean? And uh, so the, I, I am looking outside, I'm looking to grow. And obviously I'd love to have a hundred, hundred unit deal come across. So I'm hoping for something like that in the next couple of years. But as of right now, I'm going to focus on two to four units, hopefully try to buy them and then fix them up and be able to get some of the cash back out. My goal would be to have more cash flowing units, but still be able to hold on to some of my capital. Because what I've learned so far is if you just buy with your own money, you know, you save up for a down payment, it's you got to come up with 25%. If you want to buy a four unit, you know, you're not going to live there. You know, 400,000, you've got to save up $100,000 plus closing costs. That takes a long time to to save up that kind of money, you know, and then, all right, now you got to wait and save up and save up again. I've actually uh, spoken to multiple people in the last week who are now going to provide hard money loans to me to go buy properties for, for this year. So by doing that, and then you guys have probably heard it like, you know, that Burr strategy where you, where you buy it and then yeah, um, yeah. rehab it, rent it, refi and repeat it. So that's kind of what I'm going to try to do this year is my goal would be to have a cash pile there enough to kind of pay off my home in the coming years, but not use it for that, but have that ability to have that. So if I, the more money I can keep of my own, that's, that's my goal to do that and still invest in real estate. Yeah, I think that's awesome. You kind of touched on what we kind of wanted to go in next, but I, I want to ask a quick question you brought up. What kind of rates do you do you find on hard money and are you paying on, on that hard money loan? Well, so far, it's only been just talking with people. I haven't actually pulled a trigger yet, um, but anywhere from 6 to 10% right now is what I've kind of laid out so far in our initial discussions. And most of the people that I've spoken with are, are – uh, good friends of mine. So it's kind of negotiable at that point. Probably sure they're going to want equity or something. But at this point, I've kind of informed them and I would just kind of want to do the hard money deal. Uh-huh. And then as the deals come in, look more for people that want to join equity or do something possibly with syndication or something. That makes sense. So Doug, I got to ask, you, you've built up this portfolio. You kind of laid out some of your future plans with real estate. Is there a certain passive income goal you're trying to get to down <clears throat> the road or net worth? Yes, more. No, <laughs> that's uh no. I mean, I would like to. I would like to replace my after-tax base salary. You know, I would like to get six figures in 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 real estate passive income. So, you know, I've done nearly half of that in three years with a few properties. So, I'm hoping that if I kind of ramp it up really quickly, that I can do that in the next twelve to eighteen months. You know, be able to maybe take the foot off the gas with the the engineering for a bit and kind of focus more on maybe getting more deals in the real estate aspect of it. And do you plan to continue invest in the market at all? So based on, you know, if I ever left this company, my fortunately our uh, 
ESOP is growing at about 20% a year. I would have, you know, if I counted that as a 401k right now or a retirement, it's close to 400k. Um, so I would think in about five years by running the numbers, that number would be close to 800k. You know, by the time I'm 45 in a pre-tax uh, fund, I would probably stop contributing to that. I'm saying this now, but just due to the fact of how much that could grow over the next 20 years of just sitting there and then how many taxes I'd have to pay on it. So then start using that money now to invest in, you know, more real estate or maybe other businesses rather than just dumping it into the 401k. Yeah, it makes sense. But but I don't plan on investing too much in the market um, with post-tax money unless it's like a Roth just just the way it's kind of laid out right now, I think I'll have enough in the market in retirement accounts that I can use the rest for things that I've been getting, you know, over 20% returns on. Yeah. And is 20 kind of what you're targeting with your real estate? Yeah. I mean, 18 is my low if I see a cash on cash return. So, you know, versus I'm not buying for appreciation yet because I have so little capital in. You know, a lot of people can buy and hope that, you know, dump a lot of money in and then know the appreciation is going to take care of them. I've been looking more at cash flow. So that, that's been my, my plan with it. Yeah, it makes sense. You know, I want to, I want to touch on something. I think we've only talked about this maybe one other time on our show. And, and that's the ESOP situation. You know, there aren't very many around anymore. Is that something that you would advise people to look at if they can get into a company that's an ESOP or is it something that you'd say probably not or what? I mean, what are the benefits? What are the drawbacks in your opinion? Well, I would say the benefits definitely outweigh the drawbacks. The ESOP, so it's just it just stands for Employee Stock Ownership Plan. Um, so what it just means is we're a privately held company. And so each year you get evaluated as a company. It takes like six or eight months for this to happen. And they just look through all the books, all the things on record, cash flows, um, and then they just basically determine a value like the market does, except it's once a year. And then the way they typically do it, they'll base on your years of service or strictly your your salary, and they'll give you ownership in the company based on how much you actually made the year before. So with us, it's like the owner sold the company to the employees or quote unquote, the ESOP. So we've been paying back that mortgage. And the way they've been doing it is typically 7% of your of your overall salary from the year before gets put into the ESOP. And that is nothing that the employee pays for. That's just an additional benefit on top of it. So it's it, it incentivizes employees to do well. You know what I mean? Because if you know if you're going to do well, there's a better chance that the company does well. If the company does well, the ESOP's going to increase. And now you actually have a part in the company. There's been tons of studies shown that uh, I think it's like not minimum wage, but you know median age Median wage workers who are part of an ESOP, they have like, and don't quote me on these numbers, it's two to three times the amount of retirement, you know, when they retire versus someone that just had the straight 401k. Um, and as a company, an ESOP pays no federal income tax. So that allows the company to go then acquire more, pro- more, uh, more businesses to increase revenue and increase, um, the actual valuation of the company. I think that's a, a perk of, you know, an incentive by the government for employees to do that, employers to start these programs. Ours is pretty unique. We have 40 businesses in this company, um, and each is its own little profit and loss center. So 
they basically you like I'm responsible for all the books, all the hiring, all, you know, getting everybody in, getting the work done, finding the work, booking the work, doing the work. It's like basically your own company, but we have a corporate that franchise essentially that takes care of, you know, getting the health insurance to everybody and making sure payroll gets out. And then if you do well at the end of the year, the company, you know, returns that in the share of profit for bonus. So, you know, they'll give you up to say 35% of the profit of the company, of your company back to distribute to the employees. So that's kind of a huge incentive for, for that company as well. They go from, you know, if you do well, your business unit does well, you know, there's a good chance you're going to get a bonus. And then if your, your business unit does well and you have a bonus, then there's a good chance that other companies are doing well because everybody's hyper competitive. So the ESOP just been growing at yeah 20% a year for nine years. Wow. Yeah. Wow. That's pretty good. So just, just wrapping up here, I know I've taken a lot of your time, so I'll let you go here, but a couple of rapid fire questions here. What's been your range of income through your working life? Um, first offer was about 39 K. Um, and then last year was about 378. Wow. Good for you. Amazing. And then household spending, what do you spend annually? Not including vacations, but, uh, <laughs> so I would say around six figures, around a hundred thousand. That includes vacations or no? Um, the vacations usually come out of the bonus. So that's another 10 grand or so. Gotcha. Um, so probably 110 total out the door. Gotcha. So in closing here, I know you, you gave a lot of terrific advice. Do you have any final words of advice or maybe somebody who's in your situation? I know, you know, you told us that, that you were going kind of paycheck to paycheck for a while or had maybe a negative net worth. And now you've obviously been able to rebound so successfully and have a great rental portfolio and a high income. What's kind of your last final words of advice or, or mistakes that you would avoid again or that you would advise against for somebody who may be in a similar situation? You know, don't buy more house than you can afford, which is what I did in the beginning. And then it was, you know, the market collapsed and all that. I mean, if if possible, if you can handle it, I would recommend anybody to house hack a multi-unit. I mean, and don't buy an expensive car. If you can just get rid of that housing cost, and actually get an asset that's being paid for, you know, it just frees up so much of your income to be able to invest and in, in grow, even if you don't want to grow more real estate. And as far as, you know, a career thing, you know, I used to try all these side hustles and those are great for some people. But what I found was the more I focused and found a niche in my market was I built up a lot more career capital and then my name became more and more well-known that I was able to kind of demand a salary for what I was doing instead of trying to create van pools to save money. I was able to kind of demand my salary. And then from there, create, you know, year after year uh, clients. From that, I was able to, you know, build a business unit basically by hyper-focusing on on one genre that I became really good at, even though I didn't like it in the beginning. I just kept, you know, going until I found the niche that I that I really enjoyed doing. Yeah, really interesting because I, I remember when, when starting this podcast, you know, I would, I would read around and I, I came across a couple of things of advice that said, niche down and then niche down again. Yeah. And, and that's kind of where you'll find the niche that people are looking for or the, the piece of success. So really good advice. And, and thanks again. That's Doug net worth of about, I'm going to call it a million bucks back and forth, right? 900 a million. Thanks so much for coming on the show today. Really appreciate it. I right, appreciate it. Thanks for the time, guys. Thanks, Doug. Thanks for listening to the Millionaire's Unveiled Podcast with Clark Sheffield and Chase Mantinson. 
For more stories, investment opportunities, and information, check out our website at millionairesunveiled.com. See you next time when you'll hear from another everyday millionaire.